Welcome to Searching for Mana, the podcast focused on tech innovation in finance, fintech. I'm Lloyd Wired and I'm a headhunter. I'm privileged to spend my days meeting with some of the influencers, leaders and founders in technology and finance, from unicorn companies to financial disruptors. This podcast, we're going to be hearing from these individuals and really try to understand how they got into fintech, what they're doing, what their company is all about, and perhaps some of the trends that they're looking at in the market. Shafani Roy um, from TrueLayer. Um, your product, if you were to elevate it, mention mm. to me, please. So we're a technology company um, and we work in the open banking space and we have two products. Uh, one is a data product and one a payment product. Um, the, pay- the data product is one that allows you to, as an application, we're a B2B business, I should say that first. Uh, it allows that business to retrieve the end user's data from their bank account with their consent through us. The payment product allows an application to initiate a payment on the end user's bank account with their consent through us. So we really, I mean, Lloyd, we're the intermediary. We sit in the middle as that technology stack that helps applications facilitate those payments and retrieve that data. Okay. So that we could understand um, a use of that Mm. right now, there's been... Um, headline news yeah. of a partnership with Revolut. Yes, absolutely. In the last Yesterday, week, yeah. week or two. So if you talk us through how, if you have a Revolut account, mm. that would actually affect you. For sure. And I should say that as a Revolut customer, I was very delighted that we were able to help with that. So um, what Revolut did and launched yesterday was this idea of linking other bank accounts to your Revolut bank account. And what they've been able to do then with that is if I link my, for example, HSBC account to my Revolut account, um, Revolut then aggregates that data for me and says, well, Shafani, you spent way too much on coffee this week and not enough on, I don't know, uh, travel last week. But what they're trying to do is create an environment where any user of Revolut sees their financial state and is able to ascertain very instantly how they're doing financially, how they're keeping to their budget. Um, are they maintaining their funds appropriately? And that's really the product. It's, it's, it's a variation of a, a PFM. So Revolut... Um, started as an account that probably wouldn't have been your only account. Mm. You would have had uh, an HSBC or yes. RBS, whatever it might have been. And then uh, people went with a Revolut or other such type of digital banks because uh, they got good uh, insights into their spending. Yes. And yep, and they bought into perhaps the philosophy of um, you know let's let's do this better. Mm. Let's make this for a, a digital era. And then you, you come to now where they've they've got 10 million accounts, um, you know, whatever it is, and still really aggressive plans to grow. Yes. Um, and what they're doing with this is saying, hey, by partnering with TrueLayer, if you still, and a lot of people still will, have a traditional bank account, which you might have your mortgage mm. with, and you might use another one to get um, your salary paid into... That's cool. Yeah. Um, open that up via TrueLayer. Uh, but what you'll get is you'll get the benefit of being able to see across your finances Quite right. how, you're, how you're spending your money. Absolutely. So that's fantastic. Do you think that there's a play there that once you then um, sit on the digital uh, app, user experience of Revolut, that the plan is that then you might just bank with them? As an end user, I think... 
if you, if you didn't, you'd be very silly. I mean, Revolut has great products. Uh, the, the platform is beautiful. The app just works. Uh, they have such attention to detail as a user and care so much really about the user. So, And I say this as a customer. So if I'm going to think about why do I have my HSBC account, I should just default to Revolut. I would because they are a better platform. They give me better customer service. They give me better rates. The product suite is quite wide. Um, I can do anything on Revolut from having a bank account, doing foreign exchange, getting insurance, buying crypto um, and trading stocks. I mean, that's on one platform. I don't know any other bank on the high street does that. And they do it in an efficient way, in a very creative way. The the app is beautiful. Um, and they really, really care about the, about the end user and that experience. And so if you're going to take care of me, gosh, I, of course, I'm going to think about why should I have all these other bank accounts? I'm just going to go to them. Why do you still have the other bank accounts? Because Revolut does not, as yet, as far as I'm aware, they don't do lending and I have a mortgage, so I get better rates with my mortgage provider and that sort of thing. But at the moment, everything else um, that is in my life financially goes through Revolut. So my salary goes into my Revolut account. Um, I have a mortgage account with my normal high street bank. Um, But everything else, I buy stocks, I trade crypto. Um, If I do travel, I have instant insurance in a new country if I don't get it covered by normal travel insurance. Um, I do use it as my default for most things. So that's an example of the consumer product that Julia mm. has. And then you were talking about a payments yeah. product. What's an example of that we relate to? So if, for example, um, you were going to top up your, your Revolut account, yeah. or if you were going to, if you say you had a nutmeg or a fund management account, or uh, you, you're looking to um, top up a, a stock trading account. Instead of going into your bank account and then transferring the money into your stock trading account, you would integrate, that trading platform would integrate with Trulayer and say, all right, well, we'll just direct um, credit your your money from your bank account through our app alone so you don't have to go to your bank and through that with your consent we'll just debit I don't know 100 bucks if that's what you want to trade with and so in app the merchant or the application is allowed to initiate a payment on my bank account which I've linked uh, to top up that trading account so the user experience there is really quite effortless and frictionless and that's what you want Um, if you're looking at topping up your pension or your ISA or something which you held with nutmeg or wealth simple or whatever it might be same sort of concept I deposit a hundred bucks every month in my account to invest in a fund rather than do a direct debit for my bank account or go into my bank account every month to transfer the money. Uh, Wealth Simple might say, look, we're going to integrate with Trulia and that allows us to direct debit Shifali in app in Wealth Simple. We'll initiate a payment on your bank account and we'll just take the hundred bucks that way. So you don't have to chop and change applications. So that's really payment initiation. I mean, the good thing about it, which is very different, and this is what is really phenomenal, is the merchant initiates the payment. It's not the user, it's not the consumer, it's the merchant. And that's a great experience. So um, to get some idea of the scale of the business um, right now, you're through Series C? Yes, we raised last July. Yep. And there's 100-ish staff in the business? Yeah, we hit 97. I think we hit 97 this week, actually, yeah. Uh, so nearly I mean, I tried when we were five, so it's kind of bonkers. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm sometimes very nervous that I don't identify. And how long is that journey from five to 96? Uh, 18 months. Okay, super quick. Yeah, super quick. Wow. Um, okay. And the... Um, the business is international as well. You're, you're, you're moving to new territories. Yeah, so we, we've got a, a small little team in Hong Kong, Hong Kong and we're looking at Australia yeah. and we're looking at Europe as well. 
Okay, and the makeup of that 100-ish people is tech, data, management, sales? Well, it's quite a bit. Actually, it's a lot of tech. Half is on approximately tech, yeah. and the rest is um, sales, ops, compliance, legal, finance, yeah. uh, client care, that sort of stuff. And your role is the um, chief operating officer? Yeah, I'm the chief operating officer and the chief compliance officer. So what does that mean that you have to do? God, shucks. I mean, it means you have to do everything. <laughs> no, so do you know, I mean, as you grow, you're able to delegate a little bit more. But at some point, I think I did everything but engineering because I'm pretty crap at it and I actually don't know how to do it. So um, I did everything but engineering. Uh, and that's the joy of the startup, actually, that you do everything. You product ideate, you sell, you sell, you run budget, you do the legal and the compliance and you answer the phone and the intercom and all that sort of stuff. Um, intercom being an online chat tool for help for clients. Uh, so you do everything. And now as we've grown a, a bit more, we now have people who work and, and in the organization and we've got heads of teams who now run teams for us, which is kind of fantastic. Uh, but you do everything really. I mean, you know, anyone day could be doing a podcast which is really lovely uh, to arranging some chairs because we have new desks that have to come in to this morning you know talking to legal counsels about new territories and what yeah. we're going to do there so it could be really if, if I was if I was sending chairs and desks then you'd be a good client with the growth right oh, absolutely absolutely <laughs> we, I was literally talking to some our real estate this morning because we have to get new real estate because we've outgrown what we have oh, really? at the moment. And you're in Clarkenwell at the moment. We are. Yeah. We are in Hardwick Street, just round from Sadler's Wells, which cool. is a beautiful, lovely yeah. building. And we're just trying to figure out what else can what else we can acquire or, or rent there because not acquire, really rent, because we've already outgrown our space. We moved into the first floor no, we moved, I'm sorry, into the third floor two years ago. We moved into another floor last year. And then we had to acquire a third floor in that same building about three, four months after that. And that's now become, you know, our event space and our auditorium and kitchen and things. So how have you grown from, from uh, my interest as a headhunter? Right. Have you grown? Have you, have you partnered with headhunting firms, recruitment firms? Have you got an internal um, talent team do you, do, you, do you use the founders and the experts network mm. is it all of it it's a bit of all actually um, we started with very much our network and thinking who do we know and who can we entice to come and join Trulia yeah. uh, then it was me going on to AngelList and every single possible LinkedIn search to go who can we who can we acquire and who can we uh, yeah. uh, hire from from there and I've got to say, engin hiring engineering talent in this city is very, very hard. Right. And because I am not an engineer, I had no idea what I was doing. So that was an exciting... What did you find hard about it? Well, programming languages are very different. And what you know, one engineer learns and, and develops their skill and their expertise in might be something very different to what we have and what we've developed our tech stack in mm. and they're not transferable for the most part yeah. and also they just they're, they're very sticky i mean they like doing what they're doing they like yeah. coding in lovely language and yeah. that's really great but it kind of didn't help me did you find any tools beyond linkedin that helped you people lots of people like who could you know and our network and but not each tools so nothing um, there's some tech plays to find um engineering talent like hacker job or um, no i mean pilot. you couldn't afford it we literally couldn't afford it. We couldn't afford agencies and we don't use agencies for the most part. Yeah. Uh, we couldn't afford it. So we literally had to go, who do we know? Go call some friends and friends call your friends and yeah. you know, do me a favor and come and work for us. So yeah, that so, sort of stuff. So referrals. Very much so. And we still do that till today. Yeah. Um, most, of our, most of our team actually, I would say, has been referral based or 
applying to us. Um, very, very few has been... We, I don't think we use agencies, really. We have had contract talent team come in, so they sit in with us, but they sit in-house. And so then they they, they, are, they use their own networks, but they're yeah. seconded to us for a while yeah. um, and contractors. But then we very much use our existing networks and with cold the, hard searching. With, with the pace of talent that you um, brought in, and I'm going to assume the bar was incredibly high, yeah. um, given what you're doing. Uh, and it's a very competitive type of talent that mm. you're bringing in. How have you managed to um, to set that diversity into the culture? From the get-go. So we, I mean, I think I, I, I've got to say, um, Francesco and Luca, who are our founders, uh, hired me as the fifth person. We already had an engineer who was a woman in our team by then, the first four. I was the fifth. And we set it very early on, the expectation that we want to have a gender balance and we want to have diversity and we want to have inclusion because I think fundamentally we know that diverse and inclusive teams build diverse and inclusive products and that is better for our customers. So our clients appreciate it. And so we knew from the get-go that we wanted it. It's nice to have a seat at the table, so I enforce it. Um, it was a KPI for my talent team who reported to me very, very early on. So they were measured on it. And I do remember one of our talent guys going, this is really hard. I'm like, quiet, it is hard. That's why it's a KPI. Yeah. So you put a KPI. Um, what did that KPI look like? That they have to have gender parity through almost every stage of the process. Right. Okay. So our, our process is... Uh, if, if someone is referred or say someone applies to us, they do a screen call, a phone call with our talent partner. Yep. They then do a screen. And what's that? Is that culture? No, that's just, hello, how are you? And yeah. why do you apply for this role? Okay. And what are your expectations? And what do you think we do? And what do you do? And all that sort of stuff. Just ascertaining of the land, really. And if that goes well, then they have a call with hiring lead. If that goes well, they're then sent a written task they have to write. And normally it takes a couple of hours to do. And if it takes longer, then you should be here. That's, we, 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 we design it so that it only takes a certain amount of time for you to do. When they pass that, and hopefully that's a great piece of work, then they have an on-site with about three or four people, uh, including the hiring lead, which covers a range of things, skill, communication, culture, leadership skills. And if you've done all of that and it all goes well, then you get an offer. Yep. Oh, that's fantastic. What would so, you say the culture for you is that um, it might not be different, but if you described what that is that you're looking for in that aspect of the interview. Are you a good person? Are you a decent human being? Are you nice? Like you could be the engineer's engineer. I mean, I don't really give a shit. If you're not a nice person, you don't get hired at Trulia. Yeah. And that's fundamental. That is absolutely fundamental to who so, we are. So what type of question can determine if someone is a nice person or not? Well, I think you can tell by their demeanor in an interview. I think you can tell by how they interact with certain questions. Um, men are easier to call out than women. Um, it, and, and, you know, it's sad that it's true, but you can, you can ask particular questions. I'm going to tell you now because then I'm losing my, my secret of questions about what really, you know, tweaks someone. But you can ask very particular questions to candidates and it sparks a reaction. And that tells you whether they're going to be team players, whether they're decent, whether they're kind, whether they're nice, whether they're ethical. Uh, it tells you a lot, actually. Yeah. And I think if you don't figure out by the end of the interview whether they're nice or not, that's the fault of the interviewer, not the interviewee. Yeah. And I think that's important for us. And so I should say one of our guiding principles in our company is enjoy life. Now, I don't know any startup in London or in the world deed that says 
and at the rate we're growing, that enjoy life should be a fundamental principle of our company. And that's because we have a very healthy view about life. We have a very healthy view about work and work product. But we also have a very healthy view about what and who we want to work with. And that's important. So nice, kind, decent is important. And you could be the best person on the planet in your respective field. But if you're a dodgy person, then you're not going to get in. Yeah. That's one of the nice things about um, being either a founder or early on in um, creating a culture in a business is that you get to choose you know, where the bar is on a number of things. Mm. And you guys are really prioritizing that uh, everybody who comes in is... Uh, just a good person yeah, is, 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 is really important because yeah. that's, that's who you want to well, work I mean, with you spend, you. Well, you spend the most of your life, adult life at yeah. work. Like if you spend it at work with people you don't like, like I don't, you know, what are you doing there really? And it could be, you know, everybody's going, oh my God, that we're going to be this super duper successful company and I only want to work for companies that are going to be a rocket ship and all that sort of thing. Lovely. Very rare does that happen to every single one. But surely on the ride, you want to have fun. Yep. And you want to have fun with people who are not, you know, idiots. So what do you guys do to have fun? Uh, we have a very healthy balance of, of what works works and what is work product. Um, we're not huge fans of people working late at all. I get really irate if I see people working after 7, 7.30. It really gets my goat. Um, we get really upset if people work on a weekend. We yeah. are deliberate about it. Like I'll pull people up if they do. So I t- I t- um, I'm talking to um, somebody yesterday who's one of the very large investment banks right and the culture there the the more junior you are and actually the more in a kind of hot seat you are and by that i mean destined to go to where the the big trades are Um, then the later you work that's ridiculous and and, and the time is actually outrageous we're talking like past 12 at night typically and then also on the weekends. So if you try and talk to this person over dinner, they, they can't. They're just on their phone and they're getting mm, chased, that's ridiculous. Up, chased up by seniors. Bonkers. And I get it. If you're in some type of merger or acquisition, there's a project that every now and again, you might have more work than you can do in the time that you've been given. Mm. But if that becomes the norm, then surely that's just poor planning of your time. Well, I, I disagree even about the ad hoc because that is just poor planning and poor management. Yeah. I don't think it has anything to do with uh, it's a special project and it's an M&A or whatever you might be doing. So work, you know, 18 hours a day. It, there's absolutely no reason in this day and age why anybody should be working longer than a good eight hours. Yeah. If you, you know, We start at 10. We finish at 6.37. Yeah. Um, it's very rare that anybody at Trulea is working after 7, 7.30. Yeah, very, you, very and rare. And you guys are having um, a load of success. I'm sure there's a lot to learn from there. Not just from investment banks or law firms or, or pretty much every industry, mm. um, but in startup culture as well. If you read, um, you know, what would Elon Musk attribute some of his success to? Then, um, or, you know, uh, Jack Ma... Um, in Asia, then they will typically say the kind of 996, you know, I just crunch more numbers than people. What's the 996? It's that you're working from nine till nine, six days a week. That's ridiculous. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, if you break it down, if you're productive in that time, then it probably makes some mathematical sense that you're getting more done. Mm. But I suppose what it doesn't, uh, and maybe some people can, and Mm. they enjoy it. Mm. Um, but it probably doesn't account for burnout, uh, well, I not think being productive we don't, in that time. We don't talk a lot in our world in startups about mental health. 
We should talk about that because not just generally on, on this podcast, but generally we should talk about that as an industry because there's this, there's this myth that the longer you work, the harder you work, um, the more successful you are. And that is not true at all. And we don't believe that. And, and I think, and I've, again, I've worked you know, for some of the most successful companies in the world. I've never come across a situation where someone said this, I've never heard this 996 thing, so this is quite new for me. Uh, but I don't believe that because I think a lot should be said about working smart. Not working longer, harder, faster, stronger, whatever, working smart and being creative and figuring out how you can do eight hours worth of work in two hours. There's a lot of merit in that. And actually there's a lot of fun in that because you're trying to think of ways that you're being creative so you can do more interesting things. Yeah. Uh, I've never worked in an organization, I mean, except for Goldman's actually, but I've never worked in an organization where just because you worked longer, you were promoted or you were paid more or you were given thanks. Never. I think, never. Um, I think just in my list of quotes from billionaires, Bill, Ga- uh-huh. Bill Gates says that... Um, He'd hire a, a lazy, intelligent person every time because that person will find right. a hack Absolutely. to get to somewhere quicker. Absolutely. Which is, I think, Absolutely. I think what we're talking about there. Mm-hmm. So you, you have worked at a number of um, headline mm. global businesses. So um, let's get to that when we kind of complete the journey back to where you are now. But okay. I want to go um, further back and understand, you know, how you got into this prestigious uh Institute that you have on your jumper. Ops, I'm sorry, ops. I didn't realize. So today was the only thing I had ready, which was clean. I was like, I'm going to wear this because it's easy. And then I forgot actually I was doing this podcast. I certainly did not know it was being recorded. It seems very convenient. It doesn't. It. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. So, so um, where did let's let's go right right back yeah. to the beginning. So where where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in India. Uh, I was born and brought up in Bombay. Right. Okay. And you were the the daughter of. Um, of a father who was a pilot, I yes. believe. Is that correct? Correct, yeah. And so that meant you travelled around a lot? Too much. I mean, you know, it was it was unfortunate, but I, I always say my parents, were, they were nomadic and they travelled quite a lot themselves. And really, it was my mother who brought my brother and I up because, unfortunately, my dad was just never around because he was travelling so much. It was an amazing childhood, though, because we got to see some stunning places all across the world since I was two so I'm more familiar and more comfortable in a plane than I'm in a car and a bus let's wear that way and and so to get into Oxford to study uh, was it behavioral economics I did exactly yeah so I did um, I had a very weird route actually to Oxford so I studied when when my parents sort of moved from Australia uh, from India to Australia and they immigrated they did a little short trip in in Singapore for about 10 years Um, and so my brother and I kind of grew up in Australia by ourselves for a bit of the time and I went from school in India to school in Australia but being Indian and being in the education system in India, I skipped a few years because it was just a higher education standard than than in Australia. And that meant I went to university very early. I think I was 15 or 16 when I went to university, which I would not recommend people out there. I would not recommend that. It was very traumatic. Yeah. And I did law first, then I did economics. Then I went to Oxford, did sort of PPE, came back to Australia, did a master's in journalism and communication, finished, worked in Australia concurrently for a long time at HSBC and Aviva, then came back to the United Kingdom to do a second master's at the LSE, edited economic history, worked, started working in Europe and started working at Goldman's actually. And, and if, then, you, if you stop there, mm, up to that point before you joined Goldman's, mm, did you have a clear 
idea of what you wanted to do. Yes. So I plan. I I did a very weird thing, which is I planned my career backwards. So when I was about seventeen or eighteen, I very much thought, what do I want to be when I'm forty? I want to end my career at forty, actually, because also, I mean, working is good, but it's actually quite boring. There's so many more interesting things to do in life. And, you know, I'm exhausted. I'm tired. I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. So I said to myself at 18, 19, if I take 40 as a benchmark and I want to stop at 40, I want to be successful at 40, financially secure, financially aware, and I don't want to work. So at 40, I want to be able to say, this has been delightful, but I'm done. And so I worked my way from that and thought from 18, 19, well, what do I want to do and where do I want to go? Okay. And so that's how I did it. So you had this plan that you wanted to be out the game, retired yeah. by, by 40. And this is, you, you've worked this out about 15? Yeah, about, six, about 17, 18. I was like, this is it, I can't. Because I, by then I'd already worked for about a year. Yeah, and you'd and had enough of it after a year. I was like, this is ridiculous. And you said, <laughs> there's more to life than working. So yeah. what was that plan? What was, what was the plan that at 40, I'm going to be doing something else? What was the vision? Like an astronaut, painter... Oh Poet, do something different. Teach, um, write, do do something in the creative world, uh, travel, do nothing that is very enjoyable. <laughs> if you've ever been unemployed with money, that is very nice. <laughs> no, just do something different and, and, and give myself an opportunity to think what else is out there in the world that I really love. But what you did say was that that doesn't come at 25. No. You were like, I'll, I'll get to 40. So what yeah. was the thinking there? You, you wanted to accumulate some money? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> because again, I mean, I am the product of Indian parents, but their generosity ends at some point, basically at 20. So you kind of have to, and you know, actually I lie, my parents are just wonderful and fantastic and they're very, they're, they're great. But it was very much thinking at some point you have to be sort of self-sufficient and, you know, money that you're not going to miss, that's very nice to be in that sort of financial state. And, 40 seemed like donkey's years away when you're 18. It's like, I'll never get there. And of course, I got there last year. So that was not very pleasant. But it it was just far enough that you think you have a substantial career. And you're going to give it your best shot. Yeah. So after quite a lot of education and numerous masters and this, that or the other, Mm. you thought to attack that goal that I will go and work at Goldman Sachs? No, I thought I want to work at the best. Yeah. Uh, the best in every field anywhere in the world. Yeah. And by then I'd already worked, you know, HSBC and Aviva were doing fantastically well in Asia and, yeah. and Australia at the time. And then I deliberately came here to do my master's at the LSE. And so I never worked in Europe before. And I thought, well, let me just see what that's like. And so Goldman's was an opportunity that came my way. And you don't pass that up. And I mean, what were you doing there? I was running a sort of working in private wealth and, and uh, asset management to look at their compliance across EMEA. For how long? About 18, 19 months. Yeah, so the um, culture at Goldman's is, from all accounts, intense. Oof, too much, yeah. The reverse of what you've been saying that you've created in, the, in your current company is, I suppose, long hours, mm-hmm. it's competitive. Yeah. Um, it's cutthroat. Mm-hmm. You experienced that? Completely. So, and, and, and when I was there, I was sort of 26, 27 at the time. Uh, you, when you join Goldman's, A, you know what you're joining. I mean, if, you're, if you don't know what you're joining, then you shouldn't be there. You're not worthy of that job, I got to say. Uh, it is a phenomenal company. They are thinkers, they're doers, they're risk takers. And if you are of that type of being ambitious, wildly ambitious, in fact, incredibly hardworking, 
work and, 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 and happy to put in the hours, happy to put in to know and be knowledgeable. You are also working at the best and with the best. And you're willing to go, I don't know, I'm not the smartest person in the room, but everybody else around me is, and I'm so happy to be here. If you're that kind of person, there's no better company on the planet, I think, than Goldman Sachs. Do you think that's still the case? I don't know, 12, 13 years on, I don't really know. But at the time that I was, I mean, Lloyd, even till today, hand on heart, I can say honestly, it was the most intellectually brilliant career choice I ever made. And if I was 27 again and I had that opportunity again, I wouldn't even blink an eye to go, I'll do that again. Yeah. It was phenomenal for me at the time of my life when I was there. And Goldman's was doing some extraordinary revolutionary things in terms of products and financial uh, management. Um, they were really at the forefront of financial innovation. So the decision to, to leave there... I was exhausted. I burnt out. Yeah. Completely. So, and so it wasn't a hard decision, it was an obvious decision. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, as you rightly said earlier, it is competitive, it's hard, it's tough, there's a lot of expectation. It's really cutthroat. And I'm not that person. I, I'm not the person who goes, I'm just going to shaft my, you know, the guy who's sitting next to me or the gal who's sitting next to me for a job. And not to say that's what Goldman's does, but it is very individualistic in some respects. It's very much a team in others. But personality if you take the holistic it just wasn't for me I mean I worked I think an 18 hour day every day from my second day and I loved it but that's not sustainable the long term yeah and as, as, a, as a human being it just wasn't worth it for me and then you end up at um, Apple um, at some point shortly yeah. afterwards um, which the culture clearly has to in certain divisions be creative mm. but from what I'm aware of, which is probably not much, um, there's creative pockets, but then there's an operating business. Yeah. How close were you to um, product and the creativity or operating the business? Not very. So I took my creative stint was at Christie's before I left, before I, after I left Goldman's, um, because I left financial services because with the financial crisis had come along. And then I, excuse me, moved to Christie's. That was my creative outlet and I had a ball there actually. And then thinking, well, what else do I love? And I love technology and going to Apple. I wasn't really that close to product development or design because that all roads lead to California and to Cupertino. But my job really across the world for Apple was really looking at how do we build great business, ethical business, conduct, a supply chain, a compliance, environmental compliance, looking at doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Okay, so the ethical thing that I think Apple had mm. some bad press mm. on was the um, mm. was the supply out in developing countries um, where the culture wasn't um, always fantastic. Was that some of the Do you mean for you like third for? parties that were producing Apple goods, or yeah, that's what I mean. Where yeah. there, I think at one point there was a number of suicides in those mm. type of um, third party outlets. Yeah. Were you involved in that type of work? Not, that, not, not particularly, no. but I think what was lovely about being in that company at the time was then actually being able to move the needle and say to their develop their, their manufacturers you better clean this up, otherwise we're not going to do business with you. And that's the power of a great company and that's the power of great leadership, actually. Yeah, but that's still a big problem, isn't it? Just generically across um, industry and the news, yeah. with particularly fast fashion is, mm -hmm. in, is in the press mm -hmm. at the moment of causing um, you know, a number of really poor environments in developing countries. Um, big challenge. Um, Huge it's challenge. It's going to take powerful companies to 
sacrifice some profits and invest some. Well, I think that's great leadership, you know. Sorry to interrupt you. I was to say that that's great leadership that says we're not going to do this anymore. And so now there's this huge push towards sustainability and environmentally conscious fashion, clothing, and recycling, yes. and yeah. that's wonderful for the industry. I hope we do it more. Yeah. No, you can you can you can uh, visually see that changing in the right direction. I, mm. I think, but it will take it will take a long time. Mm, absolutely. Um, so. Then you are working um, with Stripe. Yeah. How early were you uh, with Stripe? So for the audience um, who don't know who Stripe are, this is a company who just absolutely went from zero to one in record speed. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know what they're valued at now, but it's Mm -hmm. the tens and tens of billions. Mm -hmm. Um, The the founders are Irish brothers and uh, incredibly intelligent individuals I've, I've listened to a number of podcasts that they've been yep. on and you can see why they've been so successful um, don't know much about the company beyond that mm-hmm. what could you sure I mean so I joined Stripe when they were really small in, in the UK so I think they were about maybe eight or nine people here and so I joined them here at that point and then so they how were were they in America already but in America I think they would have been about a hundred maybe okay, hundred so people quite early, yeah absolutely oh, wow. and so a lot of my job here was helping them get licensed and doing all the sort of the compliant and uh, compliance and regulatory work yep. in, in EMEA uh, and making sure that we just started well. And so that was a very early stage to join. Uh, it was very young and it was a, if actually it's a great coming. Now I think there's something like two and a half thousand people or something. So it's large. Yeah, yeah it's, I think, rumoured to be, you know, in Silicon Valley, like that's the company. Yeah. It's, it's that successful. And it, it's yeah. Patrick Collinson. Patrick Collison and John Collison, yeah. I think most, you know, people around there are like, he is in a handful of the brightest uh, and and I think as well, I mean, I think both Patrick and John, um, I only knew them when I was at Stripe, uh, but they are phenomenal leaders and visionary, really, when they think yeah. about it. And you can see why Stripe really capitalized on market. They were not the first to the market doing what they're doing. And, you know, we were not the first payment processor. There was PayPal and GoCardless was here as well and Adyen in, uh, in, in Europe. And... Of course, also looking at the credit card companies. But I think the vision of those two founders was so extraordinary. And the way they distilled it and it trickled down across the organization was so phenomenal that for all of us, and it was the first time I'd ever worked at a startup. So for me, it was just great to look and learn and be like a sponge. Yeah, I heard I heard um, Patrick explaining the, uh, how they got traction quicker than similar mm-hmm. companies was the philosophy of, if they got a meeting with a company who were interested in the product, right. then they would just send the implementation team. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just I mean, a- I remember a story, I think, and there's a picture of, I think, Patrick going himself on one of his bicycles to integrate it into someone's website. <laughs> and I think when you have that type of leadership, yeah. goodness, I mean, for the rest of us, it's easy peasy to follow that. Really. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Um, and then... Um, so with Chula, so you're number five. Mm. Does that make you a founder? No, I'm not a founder. Thank you know, thank God, because that's Patrick. That's uh, Francesco and Luca. Um, I'm just the fifth employee, yeah. um, and I'm the CEO. And 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 Francesco, um, he's is he's quite quite young. Did he graduate from um, LSE in 2012? I believe so. Or is uh, that's not an MBA or no. I, I actually I don't know what Francesco did at LSE, but yeah, he's he's. A graduate of the LSC, um, young is relative. I think. I think um, they're both in their mid thirties, so that's sure. pretty good. Okay, and uh, was 
part of what you brought into him as a person in the vision? Completely. I mean, both both of them are phenomenal guys and they're very good men and they're very honest and authentic leaders. And that's very nice. So after I left Stripe, I took a bit of a sabbatical in thinking, well, what do I want to do? Because I was at Oxford finishing my executive MBA. And I thought, well, what do I really want to do now? And so between... Because you're nearing 40 at this point when you're going to retire. I'm about 36, 37 at this point. I'm like, times... But you know, I mean, I finished at Stripe, so I'm like, I don't really need to work. But uh, let's see what else is out there. Because I've still got four years to go to 40. Um, And so at the time, I thought, what do I really want to do? And so... I looked from literally from San Francisco to Shanghai thinking anywhere in between I talked to as many people as I possibly could about what do I want to do next and I was in a relationship at the time uh, in San Francisco so I thought well maybe I should stay in San Francisco because you know here's my relationship and let's see if this works and unfortunately it didn't but also San Francisco is a really tough city to kind of live and breathe in and it wasn't my city it's not home to me but in between that I looked across the world and I thought well what do I want to do and who do I want to meet and what type of industry do I want to be in and I looked at everything healthcare transport shipping um, crypto data finance everything in between and I ended up not really settling on anything until one of our investors, who was an acquaintance of mine, said, you should come back to London and meet these two blokes, Francesco and Luca, and we've just invested in their company and they're really wonderful and you should go talk to them about this thing called open banking and have a chat. And I was all right. And we had two coffees and an email later and I joined them. So you joined there because um, you had a very good look at, um, you know, what sectors... What's going on in the sectors? Mm. What interests me mm. with the skill set I can bring to this? Um, you're in a fortunate position at that point, having had good experience, done well for yourself, mm. that you could take the patience to make sure it's the right decision. Um, and you wanted to get into something permanent because you're, you're not a contract, you're right. not interim, you buy into the commission. But actually what it was, was somebody who you already knew mm-hmm. and you recommended their referral in essence Absolutely. to a, a bunch of um, successful founders and then when you met them you brought in the people completely yeah and um, beyond that you looked at the prospect and so with open banking this is 18 months ago you know what was that why why was that prospect beyond the people and the culture looks good so interesting to you so the phenomenon about open banking is it could actually change financial services if you really look at open banking and if you extrapolate open banking and think about open finance and then you extrapolate that and think about open data now if the infrastructure on the base level is designed and we own that infrastructure and then you just add on all of these other elements then that becomes a really exciting proposition in the world of data so for us, and certainly for what Francesco and Luca are trying to do, which I think they're doing very well, is how does Trulia become the intermediary and the connector across the globe? That becomes a very interesting proposition, whether it is data transferring or looking at how you initiate bank-to-bank payments across the world. It is a completely different alternative to credit cards and financial services. It's a revolutionary way for a non-financial company to become a financial company to Trulia. But why doesn't that already exist in the form of, um, you know, these big companies such as a a MasterCard or a Visa? Well, they don't have the reels. So, and also if you do a bank-to-bank transfer, Visa doesn't get in dosh for that. There's no interchange fee that has to be paid. So this was an equalizer. I mean, it came about because of PSD2, the Payment Services Directive, which is a European regulation. Uh, It was then solidified by open banking in the UK. And it really, the whole point of it 
is competition, right? The whole point of it is saying to the consumer, you have no choice, better products, better services, less fees, cheaper, faster. And that is a very attractive proposition. But if you're the uh, consumer, what are the threats to how your data is used? Mm. So that's a really good question. I mean, Lloyd, it's also thinking about from a consumer's point of view, the end user's point of view, what are you doing with my data? Now, the only way this works is if the end user says, I consent to give your data. It is completely predicated on the end user going, I'm happy for that application to have my data and I'm happy for them to give get it. I'll consent and say yes. If they say no, this doesn't work. So you have to be, as an end consumer, really confident about who's storing my data, where it is. And Trulia doesn't do that. We just do the pass-through of the data. So an application, you could you could say to an application, sure, take my, I don't know, HSBC data and I'll consent to it because that's my bank. All Trulia does really is passes the data from your HSBC account to that application. You then have to be really comfortable with the application. What are you doing with my data? How are you storing it? What are you going to do with it? If I want to delete it, can you delete it? If I want to revoke the consent I've given to you, can you do that? The security and the um, privacy around that has to be really tight. That entity has to be regulated. We are regulated by the FCA. All of those checkpoints are really fundamental to making this sort of quote-unquote ecosystem work. And if it isn't, then open banking doesn't work. So if you were back at that, you know, early 20s, out of education, yeah. thinking, how can I retire at 40? Today, yeah. would, do you think that you, you, would, you would enter into a, uh, a similar type of company as, as Trulair? Um, you know, who's the new Goldman Sachs for you? Mm. What advice would you give for that type of move? So I think the first thing to say is startups are hard. And I think there's this misconception about it that, oh my God, I'll just join, it's gonna be fun, and you know, I'll have a beanbag and unlimited sweets and snacks, and then we're gonna become this unicorn thing, quote unquote. And that never happens. I mean, it's really rare. There's some extraordinary companies out there that are, and they're worth a ton of money, and it's because they really worked at it, and they put in the yards, and they are focused and disciplined about how they execute. So it's not easy. And if you're willing to actually do the yards and put in the work, There's a tremendous amount of great risk-taking and payoff there. Um, I had a ball when I worked at big companies because I think it's it's not a rite of passage, but certainly understanding the room, understanding how work dynamics work, understanding politics in a workplace, understanding layering and um, hierarchy. People think, oh my gosh, a startup is very flat. And to some degree it is to a point, but after a while that's unsustainable. You have to actually layer. And we started doing that at True Layer because it's impossible for Francesco, Luca and I to manage 97 people. So the reality of that comes in. It also brings in a level of maturity. And I think that's really fundamental and some people just aren't mature enough to work at a startup. And so you should think about that. And so the advice I would always give is do your due diligence understand what they're doing and for goodness sake work at a company whose product you believe in you know I was talking to some friends at Bloomberg the other day and this guy has been at Bloomberg for donkey's years and he wants to take a leap and and go into working at a startup in a small company and I said what do you want to do and he said well I've already ever known working finance and I said but you hate finance I mean you hate it Um, and Bloomberg is a great company but you hate finance why would you want to do that work at something that you love and I was like if you know if you think about the top three things that you love we always talk about really cool things that happen in healthcare because his wife is a doctor uh, you like stuff in, in transport because you love travel 
what the hell are you doing working in a finance company? If you're going to take the leap and you're going to make that risk and have your midlife crisis, for goodness sake, do it for what's worth it. You know, do it for something that you're really going to really take the risk for. Yeah. So believe in the product, believe in what we're trying to do and, and yeah. what that company is trying to achieve. And believe in the founders because the founders make it actually. Yeah. And, you know, someone I was interviewing uh, about eight months ago for marketing said to me, and unfortunately, she shouldn't get the job. But she said to me, if, if you know, Francesca and Luca are on the cover of Wired, what's the headline? How, what's, what's it look five, ten years from now, what's the headline that, that goes on the cover? And I said, we become one of the most successful financial companies with two of the nicest blokes on the planet. And she was really stunned by my answer. She said, you're joking. I was like, no, that's, that's the headline. And we can get there because we have that DNA in our culture. Yeah. We have the belief, we have the smarts, we have great people. We have two extraordinary founders who are extraordinarily lovely. That's, that's what you get there. We're not the Elon Musk Jack Mars. <laughs> that's, that's great advice. Um, so if you were thinking about some other um, concerns, so we've discussed ethics mm. um, and we've talked a bit about um, how to get a balance with with um, gender and diversity yeah. in business. Are there any other issues within um, gender diversity, such as like the inequality of pay that you're mm. passionate about and want to discuss? Absolutely. So I, I think for us, and I, I think we know this in finance, that women are underpaid. I mean, not in finance, I think across the board, women are underpaid. And for us, we have taken a very deliberate view of of how we look at pay, we look at pay parity. Um, there's no question that women at Trulia are played as much as or equal to or more in some cases as some of the men for some of the roles. And so the way we look at it is what's the base? It's equal. Um, and we look at it as future potential, not past experience. So, I mean, you know, to the women who are listening to this, you're always going to go in thinking there's five job requirement dot points. Do I fulfill all five? And we also know that, sorry guys, but the guys are gonna go, I can do one of these things. I'm just gonna fake my way through the rest of the four and talk myself up. And that's really what happens. Um, and so similarly with pay, when you say to a woman, a candidate, what was your pay and, and what are you expecting? Or what's your, what's your worth? We know that they're underpaid to begin with. So when they come into True Layer, they sometimes get a 20, 30, 40% bump because we pay at market and we pay for the job, irrespective of gender. We don't pay for what you did in your past company or your gender. Income. Right. So, okay. Is the, um, the pay um, diversity here where we're saying in some sectors, in some companies, mm. but in the main men are paid more than women mm. and particularly maybe the higher up you go in businesses is that because you think that um, females don't push as much for pay or you think that that's market led and that they're offered less no I think I, uh, women I think we we are just sometimes nervous about it right and we have this belief that gosh should we push the envelope and should we rock the boat and all that sort of stuff and that is that because there's something inside saying well, I probably shouldn't because it's harder for me to get this role. Completely. It's it's the system. I mean, it's innate yes. in the system. I remember, so I'll give you a great example. We were hiring, uh, we were writing a job spec, in fact, last year for a role. 
I can't remember what the role was, but I had put in the jobs description. We're looking for a whatever it was. Who is nice guy in finance? Right, but no. <laughs> but I think I can't remember what it was. But say it was I don't know sales executive. I can't remember. But say it was sales. We're looking for a sales executive who is a visionary and um, a great leader. And my talent partner said to me, "We should take our visionary." And I was mm-hmm. like, "Really? Why?" And he said, "Because women will be nervous of that word and that adjective, and they will not apply." Mm-hmm. I never thought about that. And I've never grown up thinking, my goodness, I, I shouldn't apply for a role like that. I never thought about that. And then he backed that up with HBR articles and, and research. And he slapped it to me. In fact, said, read all of this. And I was like, okay. And I did. And as you read it, you have this sort of innate, really heartbreaking thing of, gosh, that's actually true. So we actually took out the word. And we now have hired a woman for that role. But... His view was, if we left that word in there, we would not have women because they would just feel so underconfident. Does he, does he have a psychology background? No, I think he just cares about who we hire. Yeah, that's it. So what I'm curious about is um, if you don't think that you'd apply for a role based on it saying you are a visionary, so you take out the word visionary so that you can get um, gender diversity in the applications, then can the person be as visionary? Is it just in this instance that the connotation of visionary has been in history and biographies laid on men's? Um, well, I don't know. I, I, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, maybe it's a threatening word. Maybe the expectation was rather high. Um, but it so was just something... because women are less... Um, the cliche here is that, you know, in, in let's say, trading, women are less... Um, they take more of a risk-averse approach mm-hmm. to trading. So on a stockbroking floor, that's why more men would mm-hmm. be there because the risk is where the profit might come mm-hmm. from. But to be you know, a contrarian, if that's what makes you successful, then wouldn't you as the employer hire the man for that role? Sure, then you ask the questions in the interview, right? So you ask those questions, if that's what you're trying to ascertain. Um, excuse me, you ask those questions in the interview to go, well, let's test for that. Let's test for those qualities that we actually want. So we take out certain words or certain language in, in, a, in, a, in a job spec that potentially entices more people to apply. Yeah. But then when you look at a CV and when you look at the actual applicant through the yeah. candidate process, then maybe in that process you say, you test for that and you go, are you as extraordinary as you would like you to be? Okay. And one of the, the issues is, is, is the grassroots here. Not as many females are coming through, let's say, for your engineering team, mm. through the education system, selecting that degree. Mm. But the, the, the ratio is desperately lower. Mm. So you have to pick from a, a smaller pool. So your culture can get it right if it's true of its KPIs for doing that. But what can we do to promote the, um, the grassroots issue changing? So we, we do a lot on the community side. So a lot of, we've been doing this for about maybe a year or two, is really going to universities, whether it's Imperial or even these code academies and saying, yeah. listen, how do we bring more people in to the, into the pipeline? Uh, and how do we encourage young girls and young women to kind of take this up? And so we're very particular about it. But having it as a KPI means from the get-go, if, if the KPI doesn't meet, then every week I say to our talent team, what's, what's up with this? And what are we doing about it? So it's trying to do that. It's giving back in the community. We do a lot of community work. We, we try and host events which are women-oriented. So having you know women who code or women in tech uh, and even sort of 
disenfranchised and looking at communities where they might not have code classes as part of their education. What do we do there? How do we fund that? Or do, do we volunteer our time? But trying to do all of those things to make it more diverse. So it's not just young women, it is non-white males and trying to get everybody who's not a non-white male to get in and go give it a shot.